0: Stand by for places presents scary stories to hear in the dark part two table of contents the outsider performed by pj sasco the music of eric zahn performed by patrick keefe the yellow wallpaper performed by mary seidel and the birthmark performed by benjamin mandel by H.P. Lovecraft Unhappy is he to whom the memories of childhood bring only fear and sadness. Wretched is he who looks back upon lone hours in vast and dismal chambers with brown hangings and maddening rows of antique books or upon awed watches in twilight groves of grotesque, gigantic, and vine-encumbered trees that silently wave twisted branches far aloft. Such a lot the gods gave to me. To me, the dazed, the disappointed, the barren, the broken. And yet, I am strangely content and cling desperately to those seer memories when my mind momentarily threatens to reach beyond to the other. I know not where I was born, save that the castle was infinitely old and infinitely horrible, full of dark passages and having high ceilings where the eye could find only cobwebs and shadows. The stones in the crumbling corridors seemed always hideously damp, and there was an accursed smell everywhere. As of the piled-up corpses of dead generations, it was never light, so that I used sometimes to light candles and gaze steadily at them for relief. Nor was there any sun outdoors, since the terrible trees grew high above the topmost accessible tower, there was one black tower which reached above the trees into the unknown outer sky, but that was partly ruined and could not be ascended save by a well nigh impossible climb up the sheer wall, stone by stone. I must have lived years in this place but I cannot measure the time. Beings must have cared for my needs, yet I cannot recall any person except myself, or anything alive, but the noiseless rats and bats and spiders. I think that whoever nursed me must have been shockingly aged since my first conception of a living person was that of something mockingly like myself, yet distorted, shriveled, and decaying like the castle. To me, there was nothing grotesque in the bones and skeletons that strode some of the stone crypts deep down among the foundations. I fantastically associated these things with everyday events, and thought them more natural than the colored pictures of living beings which I found in many of the moldy books. From such books I learned all that I know. No teacher urged or guided me, and I do not recall hearing any human voice in all those years, not even my own. For although I had read of speech, I had never thought to try to speak aloud. My aspect was a matter equally unthought of for there were no mirrors in the castle and I merely regarded myself by instinct as akin to the youthful figures I saw drawn and painted in the books. I felt conscious of youth because I remembered so little. Outside, across the putrid moat and under the dark-mute trees, I would often lie and dream for hours about what I read in the books and would longingly picture myself amidst gay crowds in the sunny world beyond the endless forest. Once, I tried to escape from the forest. But as I went farther from the castle, the shade grew denser, and the air more filled with brooding fear. So that I ran frantically back, lest I lose my way in a labyrinth of nighted silence. So through endless twilights I dreamed and waited, though I knew not what I waited for. Then, in the shadowy solitude, my longing for light grew so frantic I could rest no more, and I lifted, entreating hands, to the single black ruined tower that reached above the forest into the unknown outer sky. And at last I resolved to scale that tower, for though I might, since it were better to glimpse the sky and perish than to live without ever beholding day. In the dank twilight I climbed the worn and aged stone stairs till I reached the level where they ceased and therefore clung perilously to small footholds leading upward. Ghastly and terrible was that dead stairless cylinder of rock, black, ruined, deserted and sinister were startled bats whose wings made no noise. But more ghastly and terrible still was the slowness of my progress. For climb as I might, the darkness overhead grew no thinner, and a new chill as of haunted and venerable mould assailed me. I shivered as I wondered why I did not reach the light, and would have looked down had I dared. I fancied that night had come suddenly upon me, and vainly groped with one free hand for a window abrasure, brazier, and I might peer out and above, and try to judge the height I had attained. All at once, after an infinity of awesome, sightless crawling up that concave and desperate precipice, I felt my head touch a solid thing, and I knew I must have gained the roof, or at least some kind of floor. In the darkness, I raised my free hand, tested the barrier, finding its stone, and immovable, Then came a deadly circuit of the tower, clinging to whatever holds the slimy wall would give till finally my testing hand found the barrier yielding. And I turned upward again, pushing the slab or door with my head as I used both hands in my fearful ascent. There was no light revealed above. And as my hands went higher, I knew that my climb was for the nuns ended, since the slab was the trapdoor of an aperture leading to a level stone surface of greater circumference than the lower tower. No doubt the floor of some lofty and capacious observation chamber. I crawled through carefully and tried to prevent the heavy slab from falling back into place, but failed in the latter attempt. As I lay exhausted on the stone floor I heard the eerie echoes of its fall But hoped when necessary To pry it open again Believing I was now at a prodigious height, Far above the accursed branches of the wood I dragged myself up from the floor Fumbled for the windows That I might look for the first time Upon the sky and the moon and the stars Of which I had read But on every hand I was disappointed, since all that I found were vast shelves of marble bearing odious oblong boxes of disturbing size. More and more I reflected and wondered what hoary secrets might abide in this high apartment so many aeons cut off from the castle below. Then unexpectedly my hands came upon a doorway where hung a portal stone, rough with strange chiseling. Trying it, I found it locked. But with a supreme burst of strength, I overcame all obstacles and dragged it open inward. As I did, so there came to me the purest ecstasy I have ever known. For shining tranquilly through an ornate grating of iron, and down a short stone passageway of steps that ascended from the newly found doorway, was the radiant full moon, which I had never before seen save in dreams, and in vague visions I dared not call memories. Fancying now that I had attained the very pinnacle of the castle, I commenced to rush up the few steps beyond the door, but the sudden veiling of the moon by a cloud caused me to stumble, and I felt my way more slowly in the dark. It was still very dark when I reached the grating which I tried carefully and found, unlocked, but which I did not open, for fear of falling from the amazing height to which I had climbed then the moon came out. Most demonical of all shocks is that of the abysmally unexpected and grotesquely unbelievable. Nothing I had before undergone could compare in terror with what I now saw. With the bizarre marvels that sight implied. The sight itself was as simple. As it was stupefying for it was merely this instead of a dizzying prospect of treetops seen from a lofty eminence there stretched around me on a level through the grating nothing less than the solid ground decked and diversified by marble slabs and columns and overshadowed by an ancient stone church whose ruined spire gleamed spectrally in the moonlight half unconscious i opened the grating and staggered out upon the white gravel path that stretched away in two directions my mind stunned and chaotic as it was still held the frantic craving for light not even the fantastic wonder which had happened could stay my course i neither knew nor cared whether my experience was insanity dreaming or magic but was determined to gaze on brilliance and gaiety, at any cost. I knew not who I was, what I was, or what my surroundings might be, though as I continued to stumble along, I became conscious of a kind of fearsome, latent memory that made my progress not wholly fortuitous. I passed under an arch out of the region of slabs and columns, wandered through the open country, sometimes following the visible road, but sometimes leaving it curiously. To tread across meadows where only occasional ruins bespoke the ancient presence of a forgotten road once i swam across a swift river where crumbling mossy masonry told of a bridge long vanished over two hours must have passed before i reached what seemed to be My goal, a venerable ivied castle in a thick wooded park, maddeningly familiar, yet full of perplexing strangeness to me. I saw that the moat was filled in, and that some of the well-known towers were demolished, whilst new wings existed to confuse the beholder. But what I observed with chief interest and delight were the open windows, gorgeously ablaze with light, Sending forth sound of the gayest revelry. Advancing to one of these, I looked in and saw an oddly dressed company indeed making merry, speaking brightly to one another. I had never seemingly heard human speech before, and could guess only vaguely what was said. Some of the faces seemed to hold expressions that brought up incredible remote recollections. Others were utterly alien. I now stepped through the low window into the brilliantly lighted room stepping as I did so from my single bright moment of hope to my blackest convulsion of despair and realization the nightmare was quick to come for as I entered there occurred immediately one of the most terrifying demonstrations I had ever conceived scarcely Had I crossed the sea when there descended upon the whole company a sudden and unheralded fear of hideous intensity, distorting every face, evoking the most horrible screams from nearly every throat. Flight was universal, and in the clamor and panic, several fell in a swoon were dragged away by their madly fleeing companions. Many covered their eyes with their hands and plunged blindly, awkwardly in their race to escape, overturning furniture, stumbling against the walls before they managed to reach one of the many doors. The cries were shocking and as I stood in the brilliant apartment alone and dazed listening to their vanishing echoes I trembled at the thought of what might be lurking near me unseen at a casual inspection the room seemed deserted but when I moved toward one of the alcoves I thought I detected a presence there a hint of motion beyond the golden arch doorway leading to another and somewhat similar room as I approached the arch I began to perceive the presence more clearly and then, with the first and last sound I ever uttered, a ghastly ululation that revolted me almost as poignantly as its noxious because I beheld in full frightful vividness the inconceivable, indescribable, and unmentionable monstrosity which had by its simple appearance changed a merry company to a herd of delirious fugitives. I cannot even hint what it was like, for it was a compound of all that is unclean, uncanny, unwelcome, abnormal, detestable. It was the ghoulish shade of decay, antiquity, and desolation, the putrid, dripping, idolon of unwholesome revelation, the awful bearing of that which the merciful earth should always hide. God knows it was not of this world, or no longer of this world. Yet to my horror, I saw in its eaten away and bone-revealing outlines a leering, abhorrent travesty on the human shape, and in its moldy, disintegrating apparel an unspeakable quality that chilled me even more. I was almost paralyzed, but not too much so to make a feeble effort toward flight. A backward stumble which failed to break the spell in which the nameless, voiceless monster held me. My eyes bewitched by the glassy orbs which stared loathsomely into them, refused to close. Though they were mercifully blurred and shrewd the terrible object but indistinctly after the first shock, i tried to raise my hand to shut out the sight yet so stunned were my nerves that my arm could not fully obey my will the attempt however was enough to disturb my balance so that i had to stagger forward several steps to avoid falling as i did so i became suddenly and agonizingly aware of the nearness of the carrion thing whose hideous hollow breathing I half fancied I could hear. Nearly mad, I found myself yet able to throw out a hand to ward off the fetid apparition which pressed so close when in one cataclysmic second of cosmic nightmarishness and hellish accident my fingers touched the rotting outstretched paw of the monster beneath the golden arch I did not shriek, but all the fiendish ghouls that ride the night wind shrieked for me. As in that same second there crashed upon my mind a single and fleeting avalanche of soul-annihilating memory. I knew in that second all it had been. I remembered beyond the frightful castle and the trees and recognized the altered edifice in which I now stood. I recognized most terrible of all the unholy abomination that stood leering before me as I withdrew my sullied fingers from its own. But in the cosmos there is balm as well as bitterness, and that balm is never. In the supreme horror of that second, I forgot what had horrified me. And the burst of black memory vanished in a chaos of echoing images. In a dream, I fled from that haunted and accursed pile and ran swiftly and silently in the moonlight. When I returned to the churchyard place of marble, went down the steps, I found the stone trapdoor, immovable. But I was not sorry for I the antique castle and the trees. Now I ride with the mocking and friendly ghouls on the night wind, and play by day amongst the catacombs of Nephrin Ka, in the seal of the unknown valley of Hados by the Nile. I know that light is not for me, save that of the moon over the rock-tombs of nor any gaiety save the unnamed feasts of Nidocris beneath the Great Pyramid. Yet in my new wilderness and freedom I almost welcome the bitterness of alienage. For although Nepenthe has calmed me, I know always that I am an outsider, a stranger in this century and among those who are still men. This I have known ever since I stretched out my fingers to the abomination within that great gilded frame, stretched out my fingers and touched a cold and unyielding surface of polished glass.
1: The Music of Eric Zahn by H.P. Lovecraft I have examined maps of the city with the greatest care, yet have never again found the Rue de Sales. These maps have not been modern maps alone, for I know that names change. I have, on the contrary, delved deeply into all the antiquities of the place. And have personally explored every region of whatever name which could possibly answer to the street i knew as the rue de sale but despite all i have done it remains a humiliating fact that i cannot find the house the street or even the locality where during the last months of my impoverished life as a student of metaphysics at the university i heard the music of eric zon that my memory is broken i do not wonder for my health physical and mental was gravely disturbed through the period of my residence in the Rue de Sale, and I recall that I took none of my few acquaintances there. But that I cannot find the place again is both singular and perplexing, for it was within a half-hour's walk of the university, and distinguished by peculiarities which could hardly be forgotten by anyone who had been there. I have never met a person who has seen the Rue de Sale. The Rue de Sale lay across a dark river bordered by precipitous black blare windowed warehouses and spanned by a ponderous bridge of dark stone. It was always shadowy along that river, as if the smoke of neighboring factories shut out the sun perpetually. The river was also odorous with evil stenches, which I have never smelled elsewhere and which someday may help me to find it, since I should recognize them at once. Beyond that bridge were narrow, cobbled streets with rails, and then came the ascent, at first gradual, but incredibly steep as the Rue de Salle was reached. I have never seen another street as narrow and steep as the Rue de Sale. It was almost a cliff, close to all vehicles, consisting in several parts of flights of steps and ending at the top in a lofty, ivied wall. Its paving was irregular. Sometimes stone slabs, sometimes cobblestones, and sometimes bare earth with struggling greenish-gray vegetation. The houses were tall, peaked, roofed, incredibly old, and crazily leaning backward, forward, and sideways. Occasionally an opposite pair, both leaning forward, almost met across the street like an arch, and certainly they kept most of the light from the ground below. There were a few overhead bridges from house to house across the street. My room was on the fifth story, the only inhabited room there, since the house was almost empty. On the night I arrived, I heard strange music from the peaked garret overhead, and the next day asked old Blandot about it. He told me it was an old German viol player, a strange, dumb man who signed his name as Eric Zahn, and who played evenings in a cheap theater orchestra adding that Zahn's desire to play in the night after his return from the theater was the reason he had chosen this lofty and isolated garret room, whose single gabled window was the only point on the street from which one could look over the terminating wall at the declivity and panorama beyond. Thereafter, I heard Zahn every night, and although he kept me awake, I was haunted by the weirdness of his music. Knowing little of the art myself, I was yet certain that none of his harmonies had any relation to music I had heard before, and concluded that he was a composer of highly original genius. The longer I listened, the more I was fascinated, until after a week I resolved to make the old man's acquaintance. One night, as he was returning from his work, I intercepted Zahn in the hallway and told him that I would like to know him and be with him when he played. He was a small, lean, bent person with shabby clothes, blue eyes, grotesque, satyr-like face, and nearly bald head, and at first, by my words, seemed both angered and frightened. My obvious friendliness, however, finally melted him, and he grudgingly motioned me to follow him up the dark, creaking, and rickety attic stairs. His room, one of only two in the steeply-pitched garret, was on the west side, toward the high wall that formed the upper end of the street. Its size was very great, and seemed the greater because of its extraordinary barrenness and neglect. Of furniture, there was only a narrow iron bedstead, and a dingy washstand, a small table, a large bookcase, an iron music rack, and three old-fashioned chairs. Sheets of music were piled in disorder about the floor. Evidently, Eric Zahn, World of Beauty lay in some far cosmos of the imagination. Motioning me to sit down, the dumb man closed the door, turned the large wooden bolt, and lighted a candle to augment the one he had brought with him. He now removed his viol and its moth-eaten covering, and taking it, seated himself in the least uncomfortable of the chairs. He did not employ the music rack, but, offering no choice in playing from memory, enchanted me for over an hour with strains I had never heard before, strange which must have been of his own devising. To describe their exact nature is impossible for one unversed in music. They were a kind of fugue, with recurrent passage of the most captivating quality, but to me were notable for the absence of any of the weird notes I had overheard from my room below on other occasions. Those haunting notes I had remembered and had often hummed and whistled inaccurately to myself, so when the player at length laid down his bow, I asked him if he would render some of them. As I began my request, the wrinkled satyr-like face lost the bored placidity it had possessed during the playing, and seemed to show that same curious mixture of anger and fright which I had noticed when I first accosted the old man. For a moment, I was inclined to use persuasion regarding rather lightly the whims of senility, and even tried to awaken my host's weirder mood by whistling a few of the strains to which I had listened the night before. But I did not pursue this course for more than a moment, for when the dumb musician recognized the whistled air, his face grew suddenly distorted with an expression wholly beyond analysis, and his long, cold, bony right hand reached out to stop my mouth and silence the crude imitation. As he did this, he further demonstrated his eccentricity by casting a startled glance toward the lone-curtained window, as if fearful of some intruder. A glance doubtly absurd, since the garret stood high and inaccessible above all the adjacent roofs, this window being the only point on the steep street, as the concierge had told me, from which one could see over the wall at the summit. The old man's glance brought Blandot's remark to my mind, and with a certain capriciousness I felt a wish to look out over the wide and dizzying panorama of moonlit roofs and city lights beyond the hilltop, which of all the dwellers in the Rue de Sale, only this crabbed musician could see. I moved towards the window, and would have drawn aside the nondescript curtains when with a frightened rage even greater than before. The dumb lodger was upon me again, this time motioning with his head towards the door as he nervously strode to drag me thither with both hands. Now thoroughly disgusted with my host, I ordered him to release me and told him I would go at once. His clutch relaxed, and as he saw my disgust and offense, his own anger seemed to subside. He tightened his relaxing grip, but this time in a friendly manner, forcing me into a chair then with an appearance of wistfulness crossing to the littered table, where he wrote many words with a pencil in the labored French of a foreigner. The note which he finally handed me was an appeal for tolerance and forgiveness. Zahn said that he was old, lonely, and afflicted with strange fears and nervous disorders connected with his music and with other things. He had enjoyed my listenings to his music, and he wished I would come again and not mind his eccentricities but he could not play another his weird harmonies, could not bear hearing them from another, nor could he bear having anything in his room touched by another. He had not known until our hallway conversation that I could overhear his playing in my room, and now asked me if I would arrange with Blandot to take a lower room where I could not hear him in the night. He would defray the difference in rent. As I sat deciphering the execrable French, I felt more lenient toward the old man, So when I had finished reading, I shook my host by the hand and departed as a friend. The next day, Blandot gave me a more expensive room on the third floor. There was no one on the fourth floor. It was not long before I found that Zahn's eagerness for my company was not as great as it had seemed when he was still persuading me to move down from the fifth story. He did not ask me to call on him, and when I did call, he appeared uneasy and played listlessly. This was always at night, in the day he slept, and would admit no one. My liking for him did not grow, though the attic room and weird music seemed to hold an odd fascination for me. I had a curious desire to look out of that window, over the wall, and down the unseen slope. What I did succeed in doing was to overhear the nocturnal playing of the dumb old man. At first, I would tiptoe up to my old fifth floor, i grew bold enough to climb the last creaking case to the peaked garret there in the narrow hall outside the bolted door with the covered keyhole i often heard sounds which filled me with an indefinable dread the dread of vague wonder and brooding mystery it was not that the sounds were hideous for they were not but that they held vibrations suggesting nothing of this globe of earth and that at certain intervals they assumed a symphonic quality, which I could hardly conceive as produced by one player. Then, one night as I listened at the door, I heard the shrieking vial swell into a chaotic babel of sound. A pandemonium which would have led me to doubt my own shaking sanity had there not come from behind me that barred portal a piteous proof that the horror was real. The awful, inarticulate cry which only a mute can utter, and which rises only in moments of the most terrible fear or anguish. I knocked repeatedly at the door, but received no response. Afterward, I waited in the black hallway, shivering with cold and fear, till I heard the poor musician's feeble effort to rise from the floor by the aid of a chair. Believing him just conscious after a fainting fit, I renewed my rapping, at the same time calling out my name reassuringly. I heard Zahn stumble to the window and close both shutter and sash, and then stumble to the door, which he faltering unfastened to admit me. This time, his delight at having me present was real. Shaking pathetically, the old man forced me into a chair while he sank into another, beside which his viol and bow lay carelessly on the floor. He sat for some time inactive, nodding oddly but having paradoxical suggestion of intense and frightened listening. Subsequently, he seemed to be satisfied, and crossing to a chair by the table, wrote a brief note, handed it to me, and returning to the table, where he began to write rapidly and incessantly. The note implored me, in the name of mercy, to wait where I was while he prepared a full account in German of all the marvels and terror which beset him. I waited, and the dumb man's pencil flew. It was perhaps an hour later while i still waited and while the old musician's feverishly written sheets still continued to pile up that i saw Zahn start as from the hint of a horrible shock unmistakably he was looking at the curtained window and listening shudderingly then i half fancied i heard a sound myself though it was not a horrible sound but rather an exquisitely low and infinitely distant musical note suggesting a player in one of the neighboring houses, or in some abode beyond the lofty wall, over which I had never been able to look. Upon Zahn, the effect was terrible. For, dropping his pencil, suddenly he rose, seized his vial, and commenced to rend the night with the wildest playing I have ever heard from his bow, save when listening at the barred door. It would be useless to describe the playing of Eric Zahn on that dreadful night. It was more horrible than anything I had ever overheard, because I can now see the expression on his face, and could realize that this time, the motive was stark fear. He was trying to make a noise, to ward something off or drown something out, what I could not imagine, awesome though I felt it must be. The playing grew fantastic, delirious and hysterical, yet kept to the last qualities of supreme genius which I know this strange old man possessed. I recognized the air, It was a wild Hungarian dance popular in the theaters. Louder and louder, wilder and wilder, mounted the shrieking and whining of that desperate vial. The player was dripping with an uncanny perspiration and twisted like a monkey, always looking frantically at the curtained window. In his frenzied strains, I could almost see shadowy satyrs and bacchanals dancing and whirling insanely through the seething abysses of clouds and smoke and lightning And then I thought I heard a shriller, steadier note that was not from the vial. A calm, deliberate, purposeful, mocking note from far away in the west. At this juncture the shutter began to rattle in a howling night wind which had sprung up outside, as if in answer to the mad playing within. Zahn's screaming vial now outdid itself, emitting sound that I never thought a vial could emit. The shutter rattled more loudly, unfastened, and commenced slamming against the window. Then the glass broke shiveringly under a persistent impact, and the chill wind rushed in, making the candles sputter and rustling sheets of paper on the table where Zahn had begun to write about his horrible secret. I looked at Zahn and saw that he was past conscious observation. His blue eyes were bulging, glassy and sightless and the frantic playing had become a blind, mechanical, unrecognizable orgy that no pen could ever suggest. A sudden gust, stronger than the others, caught up the manuscript and bore it down toward the window. I followed the flying sheets in desperation, but they were gone before I reached the demolished panes. Then I remembered my old wish to gaze from this window. The only window in the Rue de Sale from which one might see the slope beyond the wall and the city outspread beneath. It was very dark, but the city's lights always burned, and I expected to see them there amidst the wind and the rain. Yet when I looked from the highest of all gable windows, looked while the candles sputtered and the insane vial howled with the night wind, I saw no city spread below. No friendly lights gleamed from remembered streets, but only the blackness of space illimitable unimagined space, alive with motion and music, and having no semblance of anything on Earth. And as I stood there looking in terror, the wind blew out both candles in that ancient peaked garret, leaving me in savage, impenetrable darkness, with chaos and pandemonium before me, and the demon madness of that night baying vial behind me. I staggered back in the dark, without the means of striking a light, crashing against the table, overturning a chair, and finally groping my way to the place where the blackness screamed with shocking music. To save myself and Zahn, I could at least try, whatever the powers opposed to me. Once, I thought some chill thing brushed me and I screamed, but my scream could not be heard above the hideous vial. Suddenly, out of the blackness, the madly sawing bow struck me, and I knew I was close to the player. I felt ahead, touched the back of Zahn's chair, and then found and shook his shoulder. He did not respond, and still the vial shrieked on without slackening. I moved my hand to his head, whose mechanical nodding I was able to stop, and shouted in his ear that we must both flee from the unknown things of the night. But he neither answered me nor abated the frenzy of his unutterable music, while all through the garret strange currents of wind seemed to dance in the darkness in Babel. When my hand touched his ear, I shuddered. Though I knew not why. Knew not why until I felt the still of his face. The ice-cold, stiffened, unbreathing face whose glassy eyes bulged uselessly into the void. And then, by some miracle, finding the door and a large wooden bolt, I plunged wildly away from that glassy-eyed thing in the dark and from the ghoulish howling of that accursed vial whose fury increased even as I plunged. Leaping, floating, flying down those endless stairs through the dark house, racing mindlessly out into the narrow, steep, and ancient streets of steps and tottering houses, clattering down steps and over cobbles to the lower streets in the putrid canyon-walled river, panting across the great dark bridge to the broader, healthier streets and boulevards we know. All these are terrible impressions that linger with me and I recall that there was no wind, and that the moon was out, and that all the lights of the city twinkled. Despite my most careful searches and investigations, I have never since been able to find the Sale. But I am not wholly sorry, either for this or for the loss in undreamable abysses of the closely written sheets which alone could have explained the music of Ericsson.
2: The Yellow Wallpaper, by Charlotte Perkins Stetson. It is very seldom that mere ordinary people, like John and myself, secure ancestral halls for the summer. A colonial mansion, a hereditary estate, I would say a haunted house and reach the height of romantic facility, but that would be asking too much of fate. Still, I profoundly declare that there is something queer about it. Else, why should it be let so cheaply? And why have stood so long untenanted? John laughs at me, of course, but no one expects that in a marriage. John is practical to the extreme. He has no patience with faith, no intense horror of superstition, and he scoffs openly at any talk of things not to be felt and seen and put down in figures. John is a physician, and perhaps I would not say it to a living soul, of course, but this is a dead paper and a great relief to my mind. Perhaps that is one reason I did not get well faster. You see, he does not believe I am sick. And what can one do if a physician of high standing and one's own husband assures friends and relatives that there is really nothing the matter with one but temporary nervous depression? A slight hysterical tendency. What is one to do? My brother is also a physician, and also of high standing, and he does the same thing. So I take phosphates or phosphites, whichever it is, and tonics and journeys and air and exercise, and I am absolutely forbidden to work until I am well again. Personally, I disagree with their ideas. Personally, I believe that Congenial work with excitement and change would do me good. But what is one to do? I did write for a while in spite of them. But it does exhaust me a good deal, having to be so sly about it, or else meet heavy opposition. I sometimes fancy that in my condition if I had less opposition and more society and stimulus. But John says the very worst thing I can do is to think about my condition. And I confess. It always makes me feel bad. So I will let it alone and talk about the house. The most beautiful place that is quite alone, standing well back from the road, quite three miles from the village. It makes me think of English palaces that you read about where there are hedges and walls and gates that lock and lots of separate little houses for the gardeners and people. Oh, there is a delicious garden. I never saw such a garden, large and shady full of box-bordered paths lined with long, grape-covered arbors with seats under them. There were greenhouses, too. They're all broken now. There was some legal trouble, I believe, something about the heirs and co-heirs. Anyhow, the place has been empty for years. Spoils my ghostliness, I'm afraid. But I don't care. There is something strange about the house. I can feel it. I even said so to John one moonlit evening but he said what I felt was a drought and shut the window. I get unreasonably angry with John sometimes. I'm sure I never used to be so sensitive. I think it is due to this nervous condition. But John says if I feel so, I shall neglect proper self-control. So I take pains to control myself, for him at least. And that makes me very tired. I don't like our room a bit, I wanted one downstairs that opened on the piazza and had roses all over the window and such pretty old-fashioned chintz hangings. But John would not hear of it. He said there was only one window and not room for two beds and no near room for him if he took another. He is very careful and loving and hardly lets me stir without special direction. I have a scheduled prescription for each hour in the day. He takes all care from me and so I feel basely ungrateful not to value it more. He said, we came here solely on my account, that I was to have perfect rest and all the air I could get. Your exercise depends on your strength, my dear, he said, and your food somewhat on your appetite, but air you can absorb all the time. So we took the nursery at the top of the house. It is a big, airy room, the whole floor nearly, with windows that look always and air and sunshine galore. It was nursery first, and then playroom and gymnasium, I should judge. Where windows are barred for little children, and there are rings and things in the walls. The paint and paper looks as if a boys' school had used it. It is stripped off the paper, in great patches all around the head of my bed, about as far as I can reach, and in a great place on the other side of the room, low down. I never saw worse paper in my life. One of those brawling, flamboyant patterns committing every artistic sin. It is dull enough to confuse the eye in following, pronounced enough to constantly irritate and provoke study. And when you follow the lame, uncertain curves for a little distance, they suddenly commit suicide, punch off in outrageous angles, destroy themselves in unheard-of contradictions. The color is repellent, almost revolting, a smoldering, unclean yellow, strangely faded by the slow-turning sunlight. It is a dull, yet lurid orange in some places, a sickly sulfur tint in others. No wonder the children hated it. I should hate it myself if I had to live in this room long. There comes John. I must put this away. He hates to have me write a word. We have been here two weeks and I haven't felt like writing before since that first day. I'm sitting by the window now in the atrocious nursery, and there is nothing to hinder my writing as much as I please, save lack of strength. John is away all day, and even some nights when his cases are serious. I'm glad my case is not serious. But these nervous troubles are dreadfully depressing. John does not know how much I really suffer. He knows there is no reason to suffer. And that satisfies him. Of course it is only nervousness. It does weigh on me so not to do my duty in any way. I meant to be such a help to John, such a real rest and comfort, and here I am, a comparative burden already. Nobody would believe what an effort it is to do what little I am able, to dress and entertain and order things. It is fortunate Mary is so good with the baby, such a dear baby. And yet I cannot be with him. It makes me so nervous. I suppose John never was nervous in his life. He laughs at me so about this wallpaper. First, he meant to repaper the room. But afterwards, he said that I was letting it get the better of me, and that nothing was worse for a nervous patient than to give away to such fancies. He said that after the wallpaper was changed, it would be the heavy bedstead, and then the barred windows, and then the gate at the head of the stairs, and so on. You know, the place is doing you good, he said. And really, dear, I don't care to renovate the house just for three months' rental. Then do let us go downstairs, I said. There are such pretty rooms there. And then he took me in his arms and he called me a blessed little goose. And he said he would go down cellar if I wished and have it whitewashed into the bargain. But he is right enough about the beds and the windows and the things. It is an airy and comfortable room as anyone need wish. And of course, I would not be so silly as to make them uncomfortable for just a whim. I'm really quite fond of the big room, all but the horrid paper. Out of one window, I can see the garden, those mysterious deep shaded arbors, the riotous old-fashioned flowers and bushes and gnarly trees. Out of another, I get a lovely view of the bay and a little private wharf belonging to the estate. There is a beautiful shaded lane that runs down there from the house. I always fancy I see people walking in these numerous paths and arbors. But John has cautioned me not to give way to fancy in the least. He says that my imaginative power and habit of story-making, a nervous weakness like mine, is sure to lead to all manner of excited fancies, and that I ought to use my will and good sense to check the tendency. So I try. I think sometimes that if I were only well enough to write a little, it would relieve the press of ideas and rest me, but I find I get pretty tired when I try. It is so discouraging not to have any advice and companionship about my work. When I get really well, John says we will ask Cousin Henry and Julia down for a long visit. Betty says he would as soon put fireworks in my pillowcase as to let me have those stimulating people about now. I wish I could get well faster. But I must not think like that. This paper looks to me as if it knew what a vicious influence it had. There is a recurrent spot where the pattern lolls like a broken neck, and two bulbous eyes stare at you upside down. I get possible angry with the impertinence of it and the everlastingness. Up and down and sideways they crawl and those absurd, unblinking eyes are everywhere. There's one place where two breaths didn't match and the eyes goes all up and down the line, one a little higher than the other. I never saw so much expression in an inanimate thing before and we all know how much expression they have. I used to lie awake as a child and get more entertainment and terror out of blank walls and plain furniture than most children could find in a toy store. I remember what a kindly wink the knobs of our big old bureau used to have, and there was one chair that always seemed like a strong friend. I used to feel that if any other things looked too fierce, I could always hop into that chair and be safe. The furniture in this room is no worse than inharmonious. However, for we had to bring it all from downstairs. I suppose when this was used as a playroom, they had to take the nursery things out. No wonder. I never saw such ravages as children have made here. The wallpaper, as I said before, is torn off in spots, and it sticketh closer than a brother. They must have had perseverance as well as hatred. Then the floor is scratched and gouged and splintered. The plaster itself is dug out here and there, and this great heavy bed, which is all we found in the room, looks as if it had been through the war. But I don't mind it a bit, only the paper. There comes John's sister, such a dear girl as she is, and so careful for me. I must not let her find me writing. She is a perfect and enthusiastic housekeeper and hopes for no better profession. I verily believe she thinks it is the writing which has made me sick. But I can write when she is out, and see her a long way off from these windows. There is one that commands the road, a lovely, shaded, winding road, and one that looks just off over the country. A lovely country, too, full of great elms and velvet meadows. This wallpaper has a kind of sub-pattern in a different shade, a particularly irritating one, For you can only see it in certain lights, and not clearly then. But in the places where it isn't faded, and where the sun is just so, I can see a strange, provoking, formless sort of figure that seems to skulk about behind that silly, conspicuous front design. There's a on the stairs. Well, the 4th of July is over. The people are gone, and I am tired out. John thought it might do me good to see a little company. So we just had Mother and Nellie and the children down for a week. Of course I didn't do a thing. Jenny sees to everything now. But it tired me, all the same. John says if I don't pick up faster, he shall send me to Weir Mitchell in the fall. But I don't want to go there at all. I had a friend who was in his hands once. And she says he is just like John and my brother, only more so. Besides, it's such an undertaking to go so far. I don't feel as if it's worthwhile to turn my hand over for anything, and I'm getting dreadfully fretful and querulous. I cry at nothing, and I cry most of the time. Of course I don't when John is here or anybody else, but when I am alone, and I am alone a good deal just now. John is kept in town very often by serious cases, and Jenny is good and lets me alone when I want her to. So I walk a little in the garden or down the lovely lane, sit on the porch under the roses, and lie down up here a good deal. I'm getting really fond of the room inside of the wallpaper. Perhaps because of the wallpaper. It dwells in my mind, though. I lie here this great, immovable bed. It is nailed down, I believe, and follow that pattern about by the hour. It is as good as gymnastics, I assure you. I start, we'll say, at the bottom, down in the corner over there where it has not been touched, and I determine for the thousandth time that I will follow that pointless pattern to some sort of conclusion. I know a little of the principle of design, and I know this thing was not arranged any laws of, Radiation or alternation or repetition or symmetry or anything else that I've ever heard of. It is repeated, of course, by the breath, but not otherwise. Looked at in one way, each breath stands alone. The bloated curves and flourishes, the kind of debased romanesque with delirium tremens go waddling up and down in isolated columns of fatuity. But on the other hand, They connect diagonally, and the sprawling outlines run off in great slanting waves of optic horror, like a lot of wallowing seaweeds in full chase. The whole thing goes horizontally, too. At least it seems so, and I exhaust myself in trying to distinguish the order of it going in that direction. They have used horizontal breath for a freeze. And that adds wonderfully to the confusion. There is one end of the room where it is almost intact. And there, when the cross lights fade and the low sun shines directly upon it, I can almost fancy radiation after all. The interminable, grotesque seem to form around a common center and rush off in headlong plunges with equal distraction makes me try to try to follow it. I will take a nap, I guess. I don't know why I should write this. I don't want to. I don't feel able. And I know John would think it absurd. But I must say what I feel and think. In some way, it is such a relief. But the effort is getting greater than the relief. Half the time now, I am awfully lazy and lie down ever so much. John says I mustn't lose my strength, and he has me take cod liver oil and lots of tonics and things to say nothing of ale and wine and rare meat. Dear John, he loves me very dearly and hates to have me sick. I tried to have a real, earnest, reasonable talk with him the other day and tell him how I wish he would let me make a visit to Cousin Henry and Julia. But he said i wasn't able to go nor able to stand it after i got there and i did not make out a very good case for myself for i was crying before i had finished it is getting to be a great effort for me to think straight to this nervous weakness i suppose and dear john gathered me up in his arms and just carried me upstairs and laid me on the bed and sat by me and read till my head tired He said I was his darling and his comfort and all he had and that I must take care of myself for his sake and keep well. He says no one but myself can help me out of it, that I must use my will and self-control and not let any silly fancies run away with me. There's one comfort, the baby is well and happy and does not have to occupy the nursery with this horrid wallpaper. If we had not used it, that blessed child would have. What a fortunate escape. Why, I wouldn't have a child of mine, an impressionable little thing, live in such a room for world. I never thought of it before, but it is lucky that John kept me here after all. I can stand it so much easier than a baby, you see. Of course, I never mention it to them anymore. I am too wise, but I keep watch of it all the same. There are things in that paper that nobody knows but me, or ever will. Behind that outside pattern, the dim shapes get clearer, every day. It is always the same shape, only very numerous. And it is like a woman stooping down and creeping about behind the pattern. I don't like it a bit. I wonder, I begin to think, I wish John would take me away from here. It is hard to talk with John about my case because he is so wise and because he loves me so. But I tried it last night. It was moonlight. The moon shines and all around, just as the sun does. I hate to see it sometimes. It creeps so slowly and always comes in by one window or another. John was asleep and I hated to waken him, so I kept still and watched the moonlight on that undulating wallpaper till I felt Creepy the faint figure behind seemed to shake the pattern just as if she wanted to get out. I got up softly and went to feel if the paper did move. And when I came back, John was awake. What is it, little girl? He said. Don't go walking about like that. You'll get cold. I thought it was a good time to talk. So I told him that I really was not gaining here and that I wished he would take me away. My darling, he said. Our lease will be up in three weeks, and I can't see how to leave before. The repairs are not done at home. I can't possibly leave town just now. Of course, if you were in any danger, I could and would. But you really are better, dear, whether you can see it or not. I am a doctor, dear, and I know. You are gaining flesh and color. Your appetite is better. I feel much easier about you. I don't weigh a bit more, said I, nor as much. And my appetite may be better in the evening when you are here, but it is worse in the morning when you are away. Bless your little heart, said he with a big hug. She shall be as sick as she pleases. But now let's improve the shining hours by going to sleep and talk about it in the morning. And you won't go away, I asked gloomily. Why, how can I, dear? It is only three more weeks, and then we take a nice little trip, a few days while Jenny is getting the house ready. Really, dear, you are better. Better in body, perhaps. I began and stopped short, for he sat up straight and looked at me with such a stern, reproachful look that I could not say another word. My darling, said he, I beg of you, for my sake and for our child's sake, as well as your own, that you never for one instant let that idea enter your mind. There is nothing so dangerous, so fascinating to a temperament like yours. It is a false and foolish fancy. Can you not trust me as a physician when I tell you so? So, of course, I said no more on that score, and we went to sleep before long. He thought I was asleep first, but I wasn't. I lay there for hours trying to decide whether that front pattern and the back pattern really did move together or separately. On a pattern like this by daylight, there is a lack of sequence, a defiance of law. That is a constant irritant to a normal mind. The color is hideous enough and unreliable enough, and infuriating enough, but the pattern, torturing. You think you have mastered it, but just as you get well underway in following, it turns a back somersault, and there you are. It slaps you in the face, knocks you down, and tramples upon you. It's like a bad dream. The outside of the pattern is a florid arabesque, reminding me of a fungus. You imagine a toadstool in joint, an interminable string of toadstools budding and sprouting in endless convulsions. Why, that is something like it. That is sometimes. There is one marked peculiarity about this paper, a thing nobody seems to notice but myself, and that is that it changes as the light changes. When the sun shoots in through the east window, I always watch for that first long straight ray. It changes so quickly that I can never quite believe it. That is why I always watch. By moonlight, the moon shines in all night when there is a moon. I wouldn't know it was the same paper. At night, in any kind of light, in twilight, candlelight, lamplight, and worst of all by moonlight, it becomes bars. The outside pattern, I mean. And the woman behind it is as plain as can be. I didn't realize for a long time what that thing was that showed behind that dim sub pattern but now i am quite sure it is a woman by daylight she is subdued quiet i fancy it is the pattern that keeps her so still it is so puzzling keeps me quiet by the hour i lie down ever so much now john says good for me and to sleep all i can Indeed, he started the habit by making me lie down for an hour after each meal. It is a very bad habit, I'm convinced, for you see, I don't sleep. And that cultivates deceit. For I don't tell them I'm awake, oh no. The fact is, I'm getting a little afraid of John. He seems very queer sometimes. And even Jenny has an explicable look. It strikes me occasionally just as a scientific hypothesis that perhaps... It is the paper. I have watched John when he did not know I was looking and come into the room suddenly on the most innocent excuses. And I've caught him several times looking at the paper and Jenny too. I caught Jenny with her hand on it once. She didn't know I was in the room. And when I asked her in a quiet, a very quiet, with the most restrained manner possible, what she was doing with the paper, she turned around as if she had been caught feeling looked quite angry. Asked me why I should frighten her so. Then she said that the paper stained everything it touched, that she found yellow smooches on all of my clothes and John's, and she wished we would be more careful. Did that not sound innocent? Hmm. But I know she was studying that pattern, and I am determined that nobody shall find it out but myself. Life is very much more exciting now than it used to be. You see, I have something to expect, to look forward to, to watch. I really do eat better, and I am more quiet than I was. John is so pleased to see me improve. He laughed a little the other day and said I seemed to be flourishing in spite of my wallpaper. I turned it off with a laugh. I had no intention of telling him it was because of the wallpaper. He would make fun of me. He might even want to take me away. I don't want to leave until I have found it. There is a week more, and I think that will be enough. I am feeling so much better. I don't sleep much at night, for it is so interesting to watch development, but I sleep a good deal in the daytime. In the daytime, it is so tiresome and perplexing. There are always new shoots on the fungus and new shades of yellow all over it. I cannot keep count of them, though I have tried conscientiously the strangest yellow that wallpaper makes me think of all the yellow things I ever saw but not beautiful ones like buttercups but old foul bad yellow things but there is something else about that paper the smell I noticed the moment we came into the room But with so much air and Sun it was not bad now we've had a week of fog and rain and whether the windows are open or not the smell is here creeps all over the house. I find it hovering in the dining room, skulking in the parlor, hiding in the hall, lying in wait for me on the stairs. It gets into my hair. Even when I go to ride, if I turn my head suddenly and surprise it, there is that smell. Such a peculiar odor, too. I have spent hours trying to analyze it to find what it smelled like. It is not bad at first. Very gentle, but quite the subtlest, most enduring odor I have ever met. In this damp weather, it is awful. I wake up in the night and find it hanging over me. It used to disturb me at first. I thought seriously of burning the house to reach that smell. But now I am used to it. The only thing I can think of that it is like is the color of the paper. A yellow smell. There is a funny mark on this wall, low down near the mopboard, a streak that runs around the room. It goes behind every piece of furniture except the bed, a long, straight, even smooch as if it had been rubbed over and over. I wonder how it was done and who did it and what they did it for. Round and round and round and round and round and round. <laughs> makes me dizzy. I really have discovered something at last. Through watching so much at night when it changes, though, I have finally found out the front pattern does move. And no wonder, the woman behind it shakes it. Sometimes I think there is a great many women behind, and sometimes only one. And she crawls around fast, and her crawling shakes it all over. Then, in the very bright spot. She keeps still, and in the very shady spot, she takes hold of the bars and shakes them hard. And she is all the time trying to climb through, but nobody would climb through that pattern. It strangles so. I think that is why it has so many heads. They get through, and then the pattern strangles them off and turns them upside down makes their eyes white. If those heads were covered or taken off, it would not be half so bad. I think that the woman gets out in the daytime, and I'll tell you why, privately. I've seen her. I can see her out every one of my windows. It is the same woman I know. She is always creeping, and most women do not creep by daylight. I see her in that long shaded lane, creeping up and down. I see her in those dark grape arbors, creeping all around the garden. I see her on that long road under the trees, creeping along. And when a carriage comes, she hides under a blackberry vine. I don't blame her a bit. It must be very humiliating to be caught creeping by daylight. I always lock the door when I creep by daylight. Can't do it at night, for I know John would suspect something at once. John is so queer now that I don't want to irritate him. I wish he would take another room. Besides, I don't want anybody to get that woman out at night but myself. I often wonder if I can see her out of all the windows at once. But turn as fast as I can, I can only see her out of one at a time. Although I always see her she may be able to creep faster than I can turn. I have watched her sometimes away off in the open country, creeping as fast as a cloud shadow in a high wind. If only that top pattern could be gotten off from the under one. I mean to try it, little by little. I have found another funny thing, but I shan't tell it at this time. It does not trust people too much. There are only two more days to get this paper off, and I believe John is beginning to notice. don't like the look in his eyes, and I heard him asking Jenny a lot of professional questions about me. It's a very good report to give. He said I slept a good deal in the daytime. John knows I don't sleep very well at night. For all, I'm so quiet. He asked me all sorts of questions, too, and pretended to be very loving and kind. As if I couldn't see through him. Still, don't wonder how he acts, though sleeping under that paper for three months. It only interests me that I feel sure John and Jenny are secretly affected by it. Hurrah, this is the last day, but it is enough. John to stay in town overnight and won't be out till this evening. Jenny wanted to sleep with me, the sly thing, but I told her I should undoubtedly rest better for a night all alone. That was clever, for really I wasn't alone a bit. As soon as it was moonlight and that poor thing began to crawl and shake the pattern, I got up and ran to help her. I pulled and she shook. I shook and she pulled. And before morning, we had peeled off the yarn of that paper. A strip about as high as my head and halfway around the room. And when the sun came out and that awful pattern began to laugh at me, I declared I would finish it today. We go away tomorrow, and then they are moving all of my furniture down to leave things as they were. Jenny looked at the wall in amazement. I told her merrily that I did it out of pure spite, the vicious thing. She laughed and said she wouldn't mind doing it herself. But I must not get tired. How she betrayed herself that time. But I am here, and no person touches this paper but me. Not alive. She tried to get me out of the room, it was too patent but I said it was so quiet and empty and clean now that I believed I would lie down again and sleep all I could, and not to wake me even for dinner. I would call when I woke. But now she is gone, and the servants are gone, and the things are gone, and there is nothing left but that great bed seat nailed down with the canvas mattress we found on it. We shall sleep downstairs tonight and take the boat home tomorrow. I quite enjoy the room now that it's bare again. those children did tear about here. The bedstead is fairly gnawed. But I must get to work. I have locked the door and thrown the key down into the front path. I don't want to go out. And I don't want to have anybody come in till John comes. I want to astonish him. I've got a rope up here that even Jenny did not find. If that woman does get out and tries to get away, I can tie her. But I forgot. Could not reach far without anything to stand on. Bed will not move. I tried to lift it and push it until I was lame. Then I got so angry I bit off a little piece on the corner, but it hurt my teeth. Then I pulled off all of the paper I could reach standing on the floor. It sticks horribly, and the pattern just enjoys it. All those strangled head and bulbous eyes and waddling fungus growth just shriek with derision. I'm getting angry enough to do something desperate. To jump out of the window would be admirable exercise, but the bars are too strong to even try. Besides, I wouldn't do it. Of course not. I know well enough that a step like that is improper and might be misconstrued. I don't like to look out of the windows, even. There are so many of those creeping women, and they creep so fast. I wonder if they all come out of that wallpaper, as I did. But I am securely fastened now by my well hidden rope, and you don't get me out in the road there. I suppose I still have to get back behind the pattern when it comes night. That is hard. It is so pleasant to be out in this great room and creep around as I please. I don't want to go outside. I won't, even if Jenny asks me to or outside you have to creep on the ground and everything is green instead of yellow. But here, I can creep smoothly on the floor and my shoulder just fits in that long smooch around the wall so I cannot lose my way. Hi, there's John at the door. It is no use, young man. You can't open it. Oh, it does call and pound. Now he's crying for an axe. It would be a shame to break down that beautiful door. John, dear, said I in the gentlest voice. The key is down by the front step under a plantain leaf. That silenced him for a few moments. Then he said, very quietly indeed. Open the door, my darling. I can't, said I. The key is down by the front door under a plantain leaf. And then I said it again, several times, very gently and slowly, and said it so often that he had to go and see. And he got it, of course, and came in. He stopped short by the door. What is the matter, he cried. For God's sake, what are you doing? I kept on creeping just the same, but I looked at him over my shoulder. I've got out at last, said I, in spite of you and Jane, and I've pulled off most of the paper, so you can't put me back. Now why should that man have fainted? (laughs) But he did, right across my path by the wall, so that I had to creep over him every time.
3: Birthmark by Nathaniel Hawthorne In the latter part of the last century, there lived a man of science, an eminent proficient in every branch of natural philosophy, who not long before our story opens had made experience of a spiritual affinity more attractive than any chemical one. He had left his laboratory to the care of an assistant, cleared his fine countenance from the furnace smoke washed the stain of acids from his fingers and persuaded a beautiful woman to become his wife. In those days when the comparatively recent discovery of electricity and other kindred mysteries of nature seemed to open paths into the region of miracle, it was not unusual for the love of science to rival the love of woman in its depth and absorbing energy. The higher intellect, the imagination, the spirit, and even the heart might all find their congenial aliment in pursuits which, as some of their ardent votaries believed, would ascend from one step of powerful intelligence to another, until the philosopher should lay his hand on the secret of creative force, and perhaps make new worlds for himself. We know not whether Aylmer possessed this degree of faith in man's ultimate control over nature. He had devoted himself, however, too unreservedly to scientific studies, ever to be weaned from them by any second passion. His love for his young wife might prove the stronger of the two, but it could only be by intertwining itself with his love of science and uniting the strength of the latter to his own. Such a union accordingly took place, and was attended with truly remarkable consequences and a deeply impressive morale. One day, very soon after their marriage, Aylmer sat gazing at his wife with a trouble in his countenance that grew stronger until he spoke. Georgiana, said he, has it ever occurred to you that the mark upon your cheek might be removed? No, indeed, said she, smiling, but perceiving the seriousness of his manner, she blushed deeply. To tell you the truth, it has been so often called a charm that I was simple enough to imagine it might be so. Ah on another face perhaps it might replied her husband but never on yours no dearest Georgiana you came so nearly perfect from the hand of nature that this slightest possible defect which we hesitate whether to term a defect or a beauty shocks me as being the visible mark of earthly imperfection shocks you my husband cried Georgiana deeply hurt first reddening with momentary anger, but then bursting into tears. Then why did you take me from my mother's side? You cannot love what shocks you. To explain this conversation, it must be mentioned that in the center of Georgiana's left cheek, there was a singular mark, deeply interwoven, as it were, with the texture and substance of her face. In the usual state of her complexion, a healthy, though delicate, bloom, the mark wore a tint of deeper crimson, which imperfectly defined its shape amid the surrounding rosiness. When she blushed, it gradually became more indistinct and finally vanished amid the triumphant rush of blood that bathed the whole cheek with its brilliant glow. But if any shifting motion caused her to turn pale, there was the mark again, crimson stain upon the snow, in what Aylmer sometimes deemed an almost fearful distinctness. Its shape bore not a little similarity to the human hand, though of the smallest pygmy size. Georgiana's lovers were wont to say that some fairy at her birth hour had laid her tiny hand upon the infant's cheek and left this impress there in token of the magic endowments that were to give her such sway over all hearts. Many a desperate swain would have risked life for the privilege of pressing his lips to the mysterious hand. It must not be concealed, however, that the impression wrought by this fairy's sign manual varied exceedingly according to the difference of temperament in the beholders. Some fastidious persons, but they were exclusively of her own sex, affirmed that the bloody hand, as they chose to call it, quite destroyed the effect of Georgiana's beauty and rendered her countenance even hideous. But it would be as reasonable to say that one of those small blue stains which sometimes occur in the purest statuary marble would convert the eve of powers to a monster. Masculine observers, if the birthmark did not Heightened their admiration, contented themselves with wishing it away, that the world might possess one living specimen of ideal loveliness without the semblance of a flaw. After his marriage, for he thought little or nothing of the matter before, Aylmer discovered that this was the case with himself. Had she been less beautiful, if envy's self could have found aught else to sneer at, he might have felt his affection heightened by the prettiness of this mimic hand, now vaguely portrayed, now lost now stealing forth again and glimmering to and fro with every pulse of emotion that throbbed within her heart. But seeing her otherwise so perfect, he found this one defect grow more and more intolerable with every moment of their united lives. It was the fatal flaw of humanity which nature, in one shape or another, stamps ineffaceably on all her production, whether to imply that they are temporary and finite, or that their perfection must be wrought by toil and pain. The crimson hand expressed the ineludible gripe in which mortality clutches the highest and purest of earthly mold, degrading them into kindred with the lowest, and even with the very brutes like whom their visible frames return to dust. In this manner, selecting it as the symbol of his wife's liability to sin, sorrow, decay, and death, Aylmer's somber imagination was not long in rendering the birthmark a frightful object, causing him more trouble and horror than ever Georgiana's beauty, whether of soul or sense, had given him delight. At all the seasons which should have been their happiest, he invariably and without intending it, nay, in spite of a purpose to the contrary, reverted to this one disastrous topic, trifling as it first appeared. It so connected itself with innumerable trains of thought and modes of feeling that it became the central point of all. With the morning twilight, Aylmer opened his eyes upon his wife's face and recognized the symbol of imperfection, and when they sat together at the evening hearth, his eyes wandered stealthily to her cheek and beheld flickering with the blaze of the wood fire the spectral hand that wrote mortality where he would fain have worshipped. Georgiana soon learned to shudder at his gaze. He needed but a glance with the peculiar expression that his face often wore to change the roses of her cheek to a death-like paleness, amid which the crimson hand was brought strongly out, like a base relief of ruby on the whitest marble. Late one night, when the lights were growing dim, so as hardly to betray the stain on the poor wife's cheek, she herself, for the first time, voluntarily took up the subject. Do you remember... "'My dear Aylmer,' said she, with a feeble attempt at a smile, "'have you any recollection of a dream last night about this odious hand?' "'None! None whatever!' replied Aylmer, starting. But then he added, in a dry, cold tone, affected for the sake of concealing the real depth of his emotion, "'I might well dream of it, or before I fell asleep it had taken a pretty firm hold of my fancy.' And did you dream of it? continued Georgiana hastily, for she dreaded lest a gush of tears should interrupt what she had to say. A terrible dream! I wonder that you can forget it. Is it possible to forget this one expression? It is in her heart now. We must have it out. Reflect, my husband. By all means, I would have you recall that dream. The mind is in a sad state when sleep, the all-involving, cannot confine her specters within the dim region of her sway but suffers them to break forth, affrighting this actual life with secrets that perchance belong to a deeper one. Aylmer now remembered his dream. He had fancied himself with his servant Aminadab, attempting an operation for the removal of the birthmark. But the deeper went the knife, the deeper sank the hand, until at length its tiny grasp appeared to have caught hold of Georgiana's heart. Whence, however, her husband was inexorably resolved to cut or wrench it away, When the dream had shaped itself perfectly in his memory, Aylmer sat in his wife's presence with a guilty feeling. Truth often finds its way to the mind, clothes muffled in robes of sleep, and then speaks with uncompromising directness of matters in regard to which we practice an unconscious self-deception during our waking moments. Until now, he had not been aware of the tyrannizing influence acquired by one idea over his mind, and of the lengths which he might find in his heart to go, For the sake of giving himself peace. Aylmer, resumed Georgiana solemnly, I know not what may be the cost to both of us to rid me of this fatal birthmark. Perhaps its removal may cause cureless deformity, or it may be the stain goes as deep as life itself. Again, do we know that there is a possibility, on any terms, of unclasping the firm gripe of this little hand which was laid upon me before I came into this world? Dearest Georgiana, I have spent much thought upon the subject, hastily interrupted Aylmer. I am convinced of the perfect practicability of its removal. If there be the remotest possibility of it, continued Georgiana, let the attempt be made at whatever risk. Danger is nothing to me. For life, while this hateful mark makes me the object of your horror and disgust, life is a burden which I would fling down with joy. Either remove this dreadful hand or take my wretched life. You have deep science. All the world bears witness of it. You have achieved great wonders. Cannot you remove this little, little mark which I cover with the tips of two small fingers? Is this beyond your power, for the sake of your own peace, and to save your poor wife from madness? "'Noblest, dearest, tenderest wife,' cried Aylmer, rapturously. "'Doubt not my power. I have already given this matter the deepest thought, thought which might almost have enlightened me to create a being less perfect than yourself. Georgiana, you have led me deeper than ever into the heart of science. I feel myself fully competent to render this dear cheek as faultless as its fellow. And then, most beloved, what will be my triumph when I shall have corrected what nature left imperfect in her fairest work? Even Pygmalion!' when his sculptured woman assumed life felt not greater ecstasy than mine will be. It is resolved, then, said Georgiana, faintly smiling. And, Aylmer, spare me not, though you should find the birthmark take refuge in my heart at last. Her husband tenderly kissed her cheek, her right cheek, not that which bore the impress of the crimson hand. The next day, Aylmer apprised his wife of a plan that he had formed whereby he might have opportunity for the intense thought and constant watchfulness which the proposed operation would require, while Georgiana, likewise, would enjoy the perfect repose essential to its success. They were to seclude themselves in the extensive apartments occupied by Aylmer as a laboratory, and where, during his toilsome youth, he had made discoveries in the elemental powers of nature that had roused the admiration of all the learned societies in Europe, Seated calmly in his laboratory, the pale philosopher had investigated the secrets of the highest cloud region and of the profoundest minds. He had satisfied himself of the causes that kindled and kept alive the fires of the volcano, and had explained the mystery of fountains, and how it is that they gush forth some so bright and pure, and others with such rich medicinal virtues from the dark bosom of the earth. Here, too, at an earlier period, he had studied the wonders of the human frame and attempted to fathom the very process by which nature assimilates all her precious influences, from earth and air, and from the spiritual world, to create and foster man her masterpiece. The latter pursuit, however, Elmer had long laid aside an unwilling recognition of the truth against which all seekers sooner or later stumble, that our great creative mother, while she amuses us with apparently working in the broadest sunshine, is yet severely careful to keep her own secrets, and, in spite of her pretended openness, shows us nothing but results. She permits us, indeed, to mar, but seldom to mend, and, like a jealous patentee, on no account to make. Now, however, Aylmer resumed these half-forgotten investigations, not, of course, with such hopes or wishes as first suggested them, but because they involved much physiological truth, and lay in the path of his proposed scheme for the treatment of Georgiana. As he led her over the threshold of the laboratory, Georgiana was cold and tremulous. Elmer looked cheerfully into her face, with intent to reassure her, but was so startled with the intense glow of the birthmark upon the whiteness of her cheek that he could not restrain a strong convulsive shudder. His wife fainted. Aminadab! Aminadab! shouted Elmer, stamping violently on the floor. Forthwith, there issued from an inner apartment, a man of low stature, but bulky frame, with shaggy hair hanging about his visage, which was grimed with the vapors of the furnace. This personage had been Aylmer's underworker during his whole scientific career, and was admirably fitted for that office by his great mechanical readiness and the skill with which, while incapable of comprehending a single principle, he executed all the details of his master's experiments. With his vast strength, his shaggy hair, his smoky aspect, and the indescribable earthiness that encrusted him, he seemed to represent man's physical nature, while Aylmer's slender figure and pale intellectual face were no less apt a type of the spiritual element. Throw open the door of the boudoir, Aminadab said Aylmer, and burn a pastille. Yes, master," answered Aminadab, looking intently at the lifeless form of Georgiana, and then he muttered to himself, "If she were my wife, I'd never part with that birthmark." When Georgiana recovered consciousness, she found herself breathing an atmosphere of penetrating fragrance, the gentle potency of which had recalled her from her deathlike faintness. The scene around her looked like enchantment. Aylmer had converted those smoky, dingy, somber rooms where he had spent his brightest years in recondite pursuits into a series of beautiful apartments, not unfit to be the secluded abode of a lovely woman. The walls were hung with gorgeous curtains, which imparted the combination of grandeur and grace that no other species of adornment can achieve, and as they fell from the ceiling to the floor, their rich and ponderous folds, concealing all angles and straight lines, appeared to shut in the scene from infinite space. For aught Georgiana knew it might be a pavilion among the clouds, and Aylmer, excluding the sunshine, which would have interfered with his chemical processes, had supplied its place with perfumed lamps, emitting flames of various hue, but all uniting in a soft, empurpled radiance. He now knelt by his wife's side, watching her earnestly, but without alarm, for he was confident in his science, and felt that he could draw a magic circle round her within which no evil might intrude. "'Where am I? Oh, I remember,' said Georgiana, faintly, and she placed her hand over her cheek to hide the terrible mark from her husband's eyes." "'Fear not, dearest,' exclaimed he. "'Do not shrink from me. Believe me, Georgiana, I even rejoice in this single imperfection, since it will be such a rapture to remove it.' "'Oh, spare me,' sadly replied his wife. "'Pray do not look at it again. I never can forget that convulsive shudder.' In order to soothe Georgiana, and, as it were, to release her mind from the burden of actual things, Aylmer now put into practice some of the light and playful secrets which science had taught him among its profounder lore. Airy figures, absolutely bodiless ideas and forms of unsubstantial beauty came and danced before her, printing their momentary footsteps on beams of light. Though she had some indistinct idea of the method of these optical phenomena, still the illusion was almost perfect enough to warrant the belief that her husband possessed sway over the spiritual world. Then again, when she felt a wish look forth from her seclusion, immediately as if her thoughts were answered, the procession of external existence flitted across the screen. The scenery and the figures of actual life were perfectly represented, but with that bewitching yet indescribable difference which always makes a picture, an image, or a shadow, so much more attractive than the original. When wearied of this, Aylmer bade her cast her eyes upon a vessel containing a quantity of earth. She did so, with little interest at first, but was soon startled to perceive the germ of a plant shooting upward from the soil. Then came the slender stalk, the leaves gradually unfolding themselves, and amid them was a perfect and lovely flower. It is magical, cried Georgiana. I dare not touch it. "'Nay. Pluck it,' answered Aylmer. "'Pluck it, and inhale its brief perfume while you may. The flower will wither in a few moments and leave nothing save its brown seed vessels, but thence may be perpetuated a race as ephemeral as itself.' But Georgiana had no sooner touched the flower than the whole plant suffered a blight, its leaves turning coal-black as if by the agency of fire. "'It was too powerful a stimulus," said Aylmer thoughtfully. "'To make up for this abortive experiment,' He proposed to take her portrait by a scientific process of his own invention. It was to be effected by rays of light striking upon a polished plate of metal, Georgiana assented, but, on looking at the result, was affrighted to find the features of the portrait blurred and indefinable, while the minute figure of a hand appeared where the cheek should have been. Aylmer snatched the metallic plate and threw it into a jar of corrosive acid. Soon, however, he forgot these mortifying failures. In the intervals of study and chemical experiment he came to her flushed and exhausted, but seemed invigorated by her presence and spoke in glowing language of the resources of his art. He gave a history of the long dynasty of the alchemists, who spent so many ages in quest of the universal solvent by which the golden principle might be elicited from all things vile and base. Elmer appeared to believe that, by the plainest scientific logic, It was altogether within the limits of possibility to discover this long-sought medium. But, he added, a philosopher who should go deep enough to acquire the power would attain too lofty a wisdom to stoop to the exercise of it. Not less singular were his opinions in regard to the elixir vitae. He more than intimated that it was at his option to concoct a liquid that should prolong life for years perhaps interminably, but that it would produce a discord in nature which all the world, and chiefly the quaffer of the immortal Nostrum, would find cause to curse. Aylmer, are you in earnest? asked Georgiana, looking at him with amazement and fear. It is terrible to possess such power, or even to dream of possessing it. Oh, do not tremble, my love, said her husband. I would not wrong either you or myself by working such inharmonious effects upon our lives. But I would have you consider how trifling comparison is the skill requisite to remove this little hand. At the mention of the birthmark, Georgiana, as usual, shrank as if a red-hot iron had touched her cheek. Again, Aylmer applied himself to his labors. She could hear his voice in the distant furnace room giving directions to Aminadab, whose harsh, uncouth, misshapen tones were audible in response. More like the grunt or growl of a brute than human speech. After hours of absence, Aylmer reappeared and proposed that she should now examine his cabinet of chemical products and natural treasures of the earth. Among the former, he showed her a small vial, In which, he remarked, was contained a gentle yet most powerful fragrance, capable of impregnating all the breezes that blow across a kingdom. They were of inestimable value, the contents of that little vial. And, as he said so, he threw some of the perfume into the air and filled the room with piercing and invigorating delight. And what is this? asked Georgiana. Pointing to a small crystal globe containing a gold-colored liquid, it is so beautiful to the eye that I could imagine it the elixir of life. In one sense, it is, replied Aylmer, Or rather, the elixir of immortality. It is the most precious poison that was ever concocted in this world by its acid. I could apportion the lifetime of any mortal at whom you might point your finger. The strength of the dose would determine whether he were to linger out years or drop dead in the midst of a breath. No king on his guarded throne could keep his life if I, in my private station, should deem that the welfare of millions justified me in depriving him of it. Why do you keep such a terrific drug? inquired Georgiana in horror. Do not mistrust me, dearest, said her husband, smiling. Its virtuosic potency is yet greater than its harmful one. But see, here is a powerful cosmetic. With a few drops of this in a vase of water, freckles may be washed away as easily as the hands are cleansed a stronger infusion would take the blood out of the cheek and leave the rosiest beauty a pale ghost. Is it with this lotion that you intend to bathe my cheek? asked Georgiana anxiously. Oh no, hastily replied her husband. This is merely superficial. Your case demands a remedy that shall go deeper. In his interviews with Georgiana, Elmer generally made minute inquiries as to her sensations and whether the confinement of the rooms and the temperature of the atmosphere agreed with her. These questions had such a particular drift that Georgiana began to conjecture that she was already subjected to certain physical influences, either breathed in with the fragrant air or taken with her food. She fancied likewise, but it might be altogether fancy, that there was a stirring up of her system, a strange, indefinite sensation creeping through her veins and tingling, half painfully, half pleasurably, at her heart. Still, whenever she dared to look in the mirror, there she beheld herself, pale as a white rose, With the crimson birthmark stamped upon her cheek. Not even Aylmer now hated it so much as she. To dispel the tedium of the hours which her husband found it necessary to devote to the processes of combination and analysis, Georgiana turned over the volumes of his scientific library. In many dark old tomes, she met with chapters full of romance and poetry. They were the works of philosophers of the Middle Ages, such as Albertus Magnus, Cornelius Agrippa, Paracelsus, and the famous friar who created the prophetic brazen head. All these antique naturalists stood in advance of their centuries. It were imbued with some of their credulity, and therefore were believed, and perhaps imagined themselves to have acquired from the investigation of nature, a power above nature, and from physics, a sway over the spiritual world. Hardly less curious and imaginative were the early volumes of the transactions of the royal society, in which the members, knowing little of the limits of natural possibility, were continually recording wonders or proposing methods whereby wonders might be wrought. But to Georgiana, the most engrossing volume was a large folio from her husband's own hand, in which he had recorded every experiment of his scientific career, its original aim, the methods adopted for its development, and its final success or failure, with the circumstances to which either event was attributable. The book in truth, was both the history and emblem of his ardent, ambitious, imaginative, yet practical and laborious life. He handled all physical details as if there were nothing beyond them, yet spiritualized them all, and redeemed himself from materialism by his strong and eager aspiration towards the infinite, in his grasp the veriest clod of earth assumed a soul. Georgiana, as she read, reverenced Aylmer and loved him more profoundly than ever, but with a less entire dependence on his judgment than heretofore. Much as he had accomplished, she could not but observe that his most splendid successes. Were almost invariably failures if compared with the ideal at which he aimed. His brightest diamonds were the merest pebbles and felt to be so by himself in comparison with the inestimable gems which lay hidden beyond his reach. The volume, rich with achievements that had won renown for its author, was yet as melancholy a record as ever mortal hand had penned. It was the sad confession, continual exemplification of the shortcomings of the composite man, the spirit burdened with clay and working in matter, and of the despair that assails the higher nature at finding itself so miserably thwarted by the earthly part. Perhaps every man of genius, in whatever sphere, might recognize the image of his own experience in Aylmer's journal. So deeply did these reflections affect Georgiana that she laid her face upon the open volume and burst into tears. In this situation she was found by her husband. "'It is dangerous to read in a sorcerer's books,' said he with a smile, though his countenance was uneasy and displeased. "'Georgiana, there are pages in that volume which I can scarcely glance over and keep my senses. Take heed.' lest it prove as detrimental to you. "'It has made me worship you more than ever,' said she. "'Ah, wait for this one success,' rejoined he. "'Then worship me if you will. "'I shall deem myself hardly unworthy of it. "'But come, I have sought you for the luxury of your voice. "'Sing to me, dearest.' So she poured out the liquid music of her voice to quench the thirst of his spirit. He then took his leave with a boyish exuberance of gaiety, assuring her that her seclusion would endure but a little longer and that the result was already certain. Scarcely had he departed when Georgiana felt irresistibly impelled to follow him. She had forgotten to inform Aylmer of a symptom which for two or three hours past had begun to excite her attention. It was a sensation in the fatal birthmark, not painful, but which induced a restlessness throughout her system. Hastening after her husband, she intruded for the first time into the laboratory. The first thing that struck her eye was the furnace, that hot and feverish worker, with the intense glow of its fire, which by the quantities of soot clustered above it seemed to have been burning for ages. There was a distilling apparatus in full operation. Around the room were retorts, tubes, cylinders, crucibles, and other apparatus of chemical research, and electrical machines stood ready for immediate use. The atmosphere felt oppressively close, and was tainted with gaseous odors which had been tormented forth by the processes of science. The severe and homely simplicity of the apartment, with its naked walls and brick pavement, looked strange. Accustomed as Georgiana had become to the fantastic elegance of her boudoir. But what chiefly, indeed almost solely, drew her attention was the aspect of Aylmer himself. He was pale as death, anxious and absorbed, and hung over the furnace as if it depended upon his utmost watchfulness whether the liquid which it was distilling should be the draught of immortal happiness or misery. How different from the sanguine and joyous mien that he had assumed for Georgiana's encouragement. Carefully now, Aminadab, carefully, thou human machine. Carefully, thou man of clay, muttered Aylmer, more to himself than his assistant. Now if there be a thought too much or too little, it is all over. Ho, ho, mumbled Aminadab. Look, master, look. Aylmer raised his eyes hastily, and at first reddened, then grew paler than ever on beholding Georgiana. He rushed towards her and seized her arm with a grip that left the print of his fingers upon it. "'Why would you come hither? Have you no trust in your husband?' cried he, impetuously. "'Would you throw the blight of that fatal birthmark over my labors? It is not well done. Go, prying woman, go!' "'Nay, Aylmer,' said Georgiana, with the firmness of which she possessed no stinted endowment? It is not you that have a right to complain. You mistrust your wife. You have concealed the anxiety with which you watched the development of this experiment. Think not so unworthily of me, my husband. Tell me all the risk we run, and fear not that I shall shrink, for my share in it is far less than your own. No, no, Georgiana, said Aylmer, impatiently. It must not be. I submit, replied she calmly. And Aylmer, I shall quaff whatever draft you bring me. But it will be on the same principle that would induce me to take a dose of poison if offered by your hand. My noble wife, said Aylmer, deeply moved. I knew not the height and depth of your nature until now. Nothing shall be concealed. Know then that this crimson hand, superficial as it seems, has clutched its grasp into your being with a strength of which... I had no previous conception. I have already administered agents powerful enough to do aught except change your entire physical system. Only one thing remains to be tried. If that fail us, we are ruined. Why would you hesitate to tell me this? asked she. Because, Georgiana, said Elmer in a low voice, there is Danger? Danger? There is but one danger, that this horrible stigma shall be left upon my cheek, cried Georgiana. Remove it, remove it, whatever the cost, or we shall both go mad. Heaven knows your words are too true, said Aylmer, sadly. And now, dearest, return to your boudoir. In a little while, all will be tested. He conducted her back and took leave of her with a solemn tenderness, which spoke far more than his words, how much was now at stake. After his departure Georgiana became rapt in musings. She considered the character of Aylmer, and did it completer justice than at any previous moment. Her heart exulted while it trembled at his honorable love, so pure and lofty that it would accept nothing less than perfection, nor miserably make itself contented with an earthlier nature than he had dreamed of. She felt now much more precious with such a sentiment than that meaner kind which would have borne with the imperfection for her sake and have been guilty of treason to holy love by degrading its perfect idea to the level of the actual. And with her whole spirit she prayed that for a single moment she might satisfy his highest and deepest conception. "'longer than one moment she well knew it could not be. "'For his spirit was ever on the march, ever ascending, "'and each instant required something "'that was beyond the scope of the instant before. "'The sound of her husband's footsteps aroused her. "'He bore a crystal goblet containing a liquid colorless as water, "'but bright enough to be the draft of immortality. Aylmer was pale.' but it seemed rather the consequence of a highly wrought state of mind and tension of spirit than of fear or doubt. The concoction of the draft has been perfect, said he, in answer to Georgiana's look. Unless all my science have deceived me, it cannot fail. Save on your account, my dearest Aylmer, observed his wife. I might wish to put off this birthmark of mortality by relinquishing mortality itself, in preference to any other mode, life is but a sad possession to those who have attended precisely the degree of moral advancement at which I stand. Were I weaker and blinder, it might be happiness. Were I stronger, it might be endured hopefully. But, being what I find myself, methinks thinks I am, of all mortals, the most fit to die. "'You are fit for heaven without tasting death,' replied her husband. "'But why do we speak of dying? The draft cannot fail. "'Behold its effect upon this plant.' "'On the window seat there stood a geranium, diseased with yellow blotches, "'which had overspread all its leaves. Aylmer poured a small quantity of the liquid upon the soil in which it grew. "'And a little time, when the roots of the plant had taken up the moisture,' The unsightly blotches began to be extinguished in a living verdure. There needed no proof, said Georgiana, quietly. Give me the goblet I joyfully stake all upon your word. Drink then, thou lofty creature, exclaimed Aylmer, with fervid admiration. There is no taint of imperfection on thy spirit. Thy sensible frame, too, shall soon be all perfect. She quaffed the liquid and returned the goblet to his hand. It is grateful said she with a placid smile. Methinks it is like water from a heavenly fountain, for it contains I know not what of unobtrusive fragrance and deliciousness. It allays a feverish thirst that had parched me for many days. Now, dearest, let me sleep. My earthly senses are closing over my spirit like the leaves around the heart of a rose at sunset. She spoke the last words with a gentle reluctance as if it required almost more energy than she could command to pronounce the faint and lingering syllables. Scarcely had they loitered through her lips ere she was lost in slumber. Aylmer sat by her side, watching her aspect with the emotions proper to a man the whole value of whose existence was involved in the process now to be tested. Mingled with this mood, however, was the philosophic investigation characteristic of the man of science not the minutest symptom escaped him. A heightened flush of the cheek, a slight irregularity of breath, a quiver of the eyelid, a hardly perceptible tremor through the frame, such were the details which, as the moments passed, he wrote down in his folio volume. Intense thought had set its stamp upon every previous page of that volume, but the thoughts of years were all concentrated upon the last. While thus employed... He failed not to gaze often at the fatal hand, and not without a shudder. Yet once, by a strange and unaccountable impulse, he pressed it with his lips. His spirit recoiled, however, in the very act, and Georgiana, out of the midst of her deep sleep, moved uneasily and murmured, as if in remonstrance. Again, Aylmer resumed his watch, nor was it without avail. The crimson hand, which at first had been strongly visible upon the marble paleness of Georgiana's cheek, now grew more faintly outlined. She remained not less pale than ever, but the birthmark with every breath that came and went, lost somewhat of its former distinctness. Its presence had been awful. Its departure was more awful still. Watch the stain of the rainbow fading out of the sky, and you will know how that mysterious symbol passed away. By heaven, it is well nigh gone, said Aylmer to himself in almost irrepressible ecstasy. I can scarcely trace it now. Success! Success! And now it is like the faintest rose color. The lightest flush of blood across her cheek would overcome it, but she is so pale. He drew aside the window curtain and suffered the light of natural day to fall into the room and rest upon her cheek. At the same time, he heard a gross, hoarse chuckle, which he had long known as his servant Aminadab's expression of delight. "'Ah! Claude! Ah! Earthly mass!' cried Elmer, laughing in a sort of frenzy. "'You have served me well. Matter and spirit, earth and heaven, have both done their part in this. Laugh, thing of the senses! You have earned the right to laugh!' His exclamation broke Georgiana's sleep. She slowly unclosed her eyes and gazed into the mirror which her husband had arranged for that purpose. A faint smile flitted over her lips when she recognized how barely perceptible was now that crimson hand which had once blazed forth with such disastrous brilliancy as to scare away all their happiness. But then her eyes sought Aylmer's face with a trouble and anxiety that he could by no means account for. My poor Aylmer," murmured she. Poor? Nay. Richest, happiest, most favored, exclaimed he. My peerless bride, it is successful. You are perfect. My poor Aylmer," she repeated with a more than human tenderness. You have aimed loftily. You have done nobly. Do not repent, that with so high and pure a feeling you have rejected the best the earth could offer. Aylmer, dearest Aylmer, I am dying. Alas, it was too true. The fatal hand had grappled with the mystery of life, and was the bond by which an angelic spirit kept itself in union with a mortal frame. As the last crimson tint of the birthmark, that sole token of human imperfection, faded from her cheek, the parting breath of the now perfect woman passed into the atmosphere, and her soul, Lingering a moment near her husband, took its heavenward flight.
0: Thank you for listening to Stand By For Places, Scary Stories To Hear In The Dark, Part 2. Next week, catch the horrifying tale of Dracula. And as always, we hope you have a horrible Halloween
1: season.